0: This conversation was recorded on February 28, 2015. As we continue in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we do recognize that we have a difficult passage of Scripture here, not only because of the issues that are involved, but of the transitional aspect of the Pentecostal gifts, as practiced in the early Church. Many of these gifts those that were signs and wonders to the people around them, these gifts have ceased to operate and they've ceased to operate for a good reason and they won't begin to operate during this present time for several reasons and those reasons will be given to us in 1 Corinthians 13 and we'll come there as soon as we clear this chapter and look at what it has for us. Today we're going to be in the second half of 1 Corinthians 12 beginning really with the thirteenth verse and finishing the chapter but before we do that I want to recapitulate what we talked about last time in perhaps a little more structured way just to recapitulate it briefly to see that we were looking at the manifestation of the administration of God that's actually what 1st Corinthians 12 lays out the manifestation of the administration of God here below in the absence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we saw that his determination is to demonstrate the diversity of himself and of his gifts and his administration and his operations the diversity of those three things in the unity of the church that he has organized the church which is his body. Now we always hold out the caveat that while the church is the body of Christ on earth, and there's much to be said about that, all that is to be said about that is not found in the book of Romans or in the book of 1 Corinthians. Some is found in the book of Romans. Some is found in the epistle to the Corinthians. But the final capstone of that truth is really found in the book of Ephesians. Well, we read the book of Romans with knowledge of 1 Corinthians. That's not how the Romans read it. We read 1 Corinthians with knowledge of Romans and of Ephesians. We read Romans with the knowledge of Ephesians also. So we read with more understanding and more direction than the contemporaneous reading of the Scripture could ever have been among those to whom it was written. And for that, we should be glad and we should glorify God for the wonderful grace that He's given us that we can read with such understanding and with such knowledge in a way that the early church could never read and many of these truths that we discuss have been lost throughout the history of christianity due to the foibles of christians due to the invasion of the enemies of the word of god and of the good news concerning our lord jesus christ and many of the mysteries which are found right out in the open in the scripture have been lost in a public way to the churches of God because the distinctions are not made between that which is not hidden and that which is hidden, and distinctions are not made between Jew-Gentile church of God, and distinctions are not maintained between the different dispensations of God or the transitional periods within the dispensation of God that we are trying to show here as we study 1 Corinthians. Now the transition that's going on is God is transitioning from his offer of the kingdom to Israel that when they reject it he transitions to the church which is his body so until that is fully in place and it's not fully in place in the Corinthian epistle until that is fully in place we do not have the remarkable truth the remarkable secret laid out that there is neither Jew nor Gentile anymore, but there is the church of God, a single new man. But we do have the beginnings of these truths, just as we had in Romans in the 12th chapter, and just as we have here now in 1 Corinthians in the 12th chapter, we have the beginning of these truths, and we begin to see God putting in place His permanent order, His permanent order. He has a temporary order in place for the Corinthians. He has a temporary order in place for the Romans. And we'll call this, for lack of a better term, his Pentecostal order, or the order that includes remarkable signs and wonders being worked by his people for the benefit of the nation of Israel to behold. As God is transitioning his word from Israel to the church, which is his body. So when, when we look at these epistles, we have to be careful to see that which is transitional and that which is permanent. Now, one of the permanent things we can see in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians is we can see the permanence of the order of God himself. God is a God of order. That's one thing we realize about God. He is very orderly. And God is not one to change his Ways He's unchangeable. That's one of the attributes of God, not just his comprehensive orderliness, but his immutability. We change, he doesn't. But that doesn't mean that God in his person not changing, that doesn't mean he doesn't change his arrangements for us. He certainly does do that. I want to reflect back just for a moment on verses 4, 5, and 6 of this chapter so that behind the epistle we can see God Almighty himself And just to remind us that it read in 4, 5, and 6, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversities of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, the same God which works all in all. And there we see that God is one who is diversity in unity. In fact, that's the very nature of God. One of the things that Christians know is the nature of God, other uh, others don't know that certainly the demons know that God is one Israel knew that God was one what Israel did not understand is that God is a diversity of unity he is a tri-unity and that triunity is laid out behind these verses there's one spirit one Lord one God what we see here is that there are gifts that God gives And that emphasizes the giver of the gifts, who is the Holy Spirit. He's the giver. Then we see that there are diversities in those gifts. In fact, laid out below were ten gifts that the giver gave. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, tongues, or languages, a gift of languages, and a gift of interpretation of languages. These ten gifts, gifts of the giver. Now, we not only see that God is a giver, but God is one who orders, who orders. And we see now the orderer. It says there are differences of administrations or difference of services. We might say different lines of service, but there is the same Lord. Now, this will be reemphasized emphatically in the book of Ephesians as well. But we see now here behind the lines of service is the Lord himself, and the Lord is the one who is the commander. That's what we think about when we think of a Lord. He's the one who commands. He's the one who orders us. And so we see that he orders us into lines of service. If you were to examine Romans 12 again, which we talked about briefly when we studied the book of Romans, you would see various lines of service outlined there into which lines the gifts of the Spirit operated in the Pentecostal Church. And I believe these lines of service may very well remain in the church, which is his body, though the gifts of the Holy Spirit today have to do just with the new nature, and the sign gifts that he gave no longer operate. And they no longer operate for a very good reason, which reason, I promise, we will get to that discussion. But if you looked at Romans chapter 12, you would see that the lines of service are laid out there, here called administrations, and that they were to be conducted by the believers according to what? The proportion of faith. In Romans, the principle of grace through faith is that which dominates the whole thought of working together and operating together as a church. In Corinthians, the dominating thought is the unity of the Spirit, that were to maintain the unity rather than the fractionalization that the corinthians had and the edification of the believer it's also discussed in the book of romans but in first corinthians here the edification of the whole the subordination of the interest of the individual to the benefit of the whole is emphasized here and in romans twelve we see those lines of service and they were prophecy ministry or services Teaching, exhortation, giving, ruling, and showing mercy. those are different lines of service through which the gifts channeled themselves into operation of the in the Pentecostal church and these lines of service, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, ruling, and showing mercy, I don't believe that prophecy still is a line of service except to teach prophecy except to teach what's given. So because it's a line of service and not a gift, of course there won't be the gift of prophecy in the service of prophecy, but the teaching of prophecy absolutely essential and the reminding us of the prophecies which we are to expect absolutely essential in the life of the church. In fact, when it comes to the life of the church, the holding of the prophetic teaching or the prophetic writings is perhaps the most preeminent and important line of service there is in the church and today we even understand and know and we've known this all of our Christian life about 30 years we've known that the holding forth of the prophetic truth of the scripture is the most preeminent and influential and powerful aspect of what the church does now we have all of this order we have now that God is also the planner. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the arranger of the line of service. The Holy Spirit is the giver of the gifts. We also have diversities of operations. This word for operations is an unusual word. It is a word based on working. It is the word energema, and it has to do with carrying on tasks or actions. Now, these are not actions that you make up or think up. These are actions that are planned out. And whereas they may hold a little bit of a mystery to us, just as we read here in 1 Corinthians 12, we find out, again in the book of Ephesians, in the second chapter, that we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before prepared for us to walk in. And so here we see the other aspect of our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the planner and who has organized our times and our events around the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I hope that that's beneficial and helps you to see the reflection of God in the order of the church as the apostle lays it out. Now, he continues on here where he said, we have a unity. Now, he talked about the diversity. He talked about the gifts. He talked about the administration of those gifts. He talked about the operations of God, or the working out of those administrations. And now he is emphasizing not the diversity, but the unity. And you remember we took up where it said, we being many, that we are members of one body, being many, we are one, so also is Christ. Now what's not being said here, but which will be said later, is that Christ is the fullness of God, and that the fullness of Christ is the church, which is his body. That's not taught here, but it's consistent. It's where this is going. We might say it's where 1 Corinthians is headed in terms of doctrine. And again, we'll find that in the book of Ephesians. So we see the building of the doctrine, and we see the operation of the Pentecostal church, and then we're going to see in the 13th chapter how the operation of the Pentecostal church is going to change, and it's going to be a change away from sign gifts and wonders it's going to be a change away from remarkable charisms or remarkable gifts but it will be a change to permanence of the way of unity and love of the brethren and that's what he is now beginning to assert he says in verse 13 and we talked about this before in one spirit we are all immersed into one body we're all immersed with a view toward uh, one body and this immersion is not water baptism but this is the immersion into one spirit that we receive when we receive the baptizer if you're baptized in water and it is a role it is a function it is a right of the church it is a right of the faith to be immersed in water then you're baptized by another believer and you're baptized in water that's what water baptism is it's to be after you've received christ as your savior it is a practice to demonstrate the inward work in an outward way it's a testimonial event and you're baptized in water by another believer and here this says however in one spirit in one spirit we are all baptized now we're baptized in spirit And we're baptized by a baptizer. And we know that the Lord Jesus, He is the one. It was prophesied to Him by John the Baptist. He is the one who will baptize you in spirit and in fire. And indeed, He is the one. He has baptized us in spirit when we're saved. And He will immerse us in fire at the judgment seat of Christ. He is the baptizer. Whether we're Jews or Gentiles, bond or free we've been made to drink into or in one spirit so here is now the oneness that we are to uphold and then we had the discussion of the body and the various body parts and we realize that body parts are in no position to question their function or to wonder why they're not another body part and this is corresponding by the way of the believer to the same nonsense that maybe an unbeliever would ask God Why have you made me such out of Romans chapter 9? Well, that's a quick summary of where we've been and where we're going. We're going to take up from the 21st verse here of 1 Corinthians 12 when we come back after this brief announcement. Won't you stay with us? I'm John Malone. This is BibleStudy.net. As we continue in 1 Corinthians 12, we take up in the 21st verse... We see, and the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness." For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now, here we have quite a statement, really, verses 21 through 27 of First Corinthians 12. We have a most remarkable set of observations about the way our bodies operate, and therefore, a most remarkable observation about the way that the body of Christ operates. And, of course, we know that the designer of our human bodies is God. We also know that we are made in the image of God we are in the likeness and image of God and so God's operations which we've read about are certainly compatible with the human body the human body is made the way it is it's made after God and the body of Christ is also created in Christ Jesus after God a perfect vehicle to gracefully carry out his actions and his intentions so there's no there's no mistakes about this and it's a marvelous analogy I tell people the scripture says all we like sheep have gone astray this is not like the analogies of men where we take an observation and we say well it's like this it's sort of like this and then it doesn't fit up a hundred percent God designed the sheep to be the sheep to act the way it does so that one day he could tell us, all we like sheep have gone astray. And so it carries with it such an intense amount of meaning that we can study the way sheep behave and we can understand the way that we stray and the way that we sin and move away from God. And then he comes along and tells us, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. I don't lose any of my sheep. And we understand that God has given to us a wonderful laboratory in which to learn the word of God. He has created his whole creation in such a way that he can answer his creation in our behalf with his word. And we are given a marvelous laboratory and marvelous words to study that will give us a full understanding of himself. So here when we have the references to the body and the way the body operates the way our body operates we're not here looking at a manual of physiology we're able to observe our body to learn how God would have us to operate together as members in particular and as the body of Christ so what does it say it says the eye cannot say unto the hand I have no need of thee nor the head to the feet I have no need of you now this is true In fact, the eye has no ability to say unto the hand. The eye has no judgment, it has no rank to judge whether or not it needs the hand. In fact, you might say, well, the hand needs the eye, but the eye certainly doesn't need the hand. You may think that way. You may say, well, okay, eye-hand coordination, of course, that's one of the most graceful things. It's one of the most remarkable things of an entire body. Scripture here says, The eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of you. Now one might think, well, what does the eye need the hand for? We realize the hand needs the eye. The eye is the one that sees, and then the hand goes where the eye looks. But what happens when something is thrown at the body? What happens when something is thrown at your eye? Immediately, your arm carries your hand up in front of that eye and defends that eye. The fact is, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, because there are times, what? When the eye needs the hand. Of course, we don't have the reverse stated here, because how could the hand say to the eye, I don't need you? The hand could never grasp or never reach to what it needed. Well, I say never, but it could not as easily reach or grab what it needed without the direction of the eye. Now we have the next statement in verse 21, nor the head to the feet I have no need of you now one would say well yes what need does the head have of the feet after all the head just tells the feet go forward go sideways go backwards as the head is in a position to direct all things to turn itself and direct sight Uh, the head is the central intelligence in comes the ears through the head and yet the feet carry the head to a different location for it to see and hear and smell and taste other things. And so in fact, though it may not be readily apparent at first, the head needs the feet, maybe not as often, but just as the feet need the head. And so here, though the members have different rankings in importance, depending on the function, and though the different members have different functions, Neither are without one another, and in fact, our more comely parts are busy ministering to our more feeble parts throughout our body. That's the next thing we see, verse 22. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think let to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness and this now is maybe it's a rather difficult thing to see because of the language but what the apostle is pointing out about the body is that our comely parts now what would be our comely parts those are our attractive highly used parts such as our hands it would be hard to find a more comely part of the body a more graceful part a more useful part of your body than your hands and yet your hands are busy your entire life spending their time on uncomely parts of your body your hands are busy ministering to your body throughout the day you scratch your head, you tug on your ear, you rub where it hurts you scratch where it itches your hands are busy uh, putting your clothes on to cover up your thighs and your calves and your legs with pants and clothe the whole body, the hands are very busy ministering all the time to the needs of the less comely parts of the body And to the weaker parts of the body. And so it is the case with the body of Christ. Those more comely parts, those more visible parts, those more gracefully or more graced parts, you might even say more graced parts, where perhaps abundant gifts have been bestowed, The purpose and the reason why more abundant gifting has been bestowed upon the more comely part is that it may bestow the honor given to it, not so that it can just be more honorable in and of itself and glory in and of itself and say, I'm a hand, look at me, but to enable it to bestow that honor unto the other members where it is most needed. And so here it says, our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness because they attract the ministration of that comely part now you who have been graced much understand that of one who has been graced much or has given much of that one much is expected you expect quite a lot from your hands you use them all the time for everything well that's because they've been specially graced so it is the case in the body of christ some have been graced or given more than others The purpose is not that they might be preeminent. It's not that they may bestow their honor upon themselves, but that they may bestow honor on the less comely parts where it's needed. And in this, we see who God is. We see who God is. After all, what is the grace of God, my friend? The grace of God is whatever is needed, wherever it is needed. It's what's needed, when needed, where needed. And if you think about your body and how it operates unto itself, it is busy taking that which is needed and ministering when needed to where needed. What a wonderful thought here. What a magnificent analogy is given. And what a meditation it is for us to understand why we are, who we are, with whom we are, when we are. That's a lot to think about. It was a lot to say. But that is what is given here in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, as we begin to see God's purpose behind his arrangements, what begins to happen? We begin to realize that the problem that we have is not discovering what gifts we have or who's gifted or whatsoever that. We begin to see that the big problem and the big challenge is to operate in a way that is honorable to God by operating in a way honorable to the church, which is his body. And, of course, that's what the apostle is trying to bring us to understand, that the whole matter here is not who we are as much as how we conduct ourselves in Christ. And that's where this is all headed, because it's headed to the 13th chapter. And in the 13th chapter, we're going to see many seminal things. We're going to see the things that last compared to the things that are temporary now the apostle knows that there's temporary things here so he's trying to demonstrate to the corinthians that really the greatest thing here is going to be love i get ahead of myself because i'm all the way down to the end of the chapter but we need to be up here in the 24th verse of chapter 12 where it says for our comely parts have no need but god has tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacks. Now, what is emphatic here is not about who's a comely part, or a more graced part, we could put it, or who's a needy part, or a less graced part. That's not the emphasis here. The emphasis here is that God has tempered together, or mingled together, or God has compounded, He has put us together in a way that he desires in order that there's an abundance of honor in one place and a lack of honor in another place and it is his good will, and it is his good pleasure and his desire to see that body function in such a way that the honor that is the effort the resources and the time gets placed where it ought to be placed and so verse 25 that there should be no schism in the body Now here he uses a bit of a play on words. A schism is a tear. A schism is a division. And of course, when a body has a division in it, it begins to bleed. When you have a cut in the body, it begins to bleed. And all resources of the body are immediately and urgently called to heal the schism. Otherwise, you'll all die because you'll bleed to death the life of the body will leak out. So the apostle is now here calling them to remedy their condition. You remember the Corinthian church was all schismed up. It was all divided up. And of course, that means that the body was bleeding to death. It was bleeding to death. And he's calling on the more comely or the more graced members to get down off their horses, their high horses, and to minister to the needs that are present it's all hands stop the bleeding that's the answer here he says now there should be no schism in the body well why well because a schism or a cut in the body destroys the body altogether it kills the body so he says that God has ordered matters such that there will be no schism in the body God has ordered matters in a way that instead of creating schism Due to the graces that you have, and seeking after your own preeminence, you would utilize what God has given you to heal rather than cause these schisms. Well, there should be no schism in the body; that the members should have the same care one for another. And of course, that's what ha- when we have a schism, that's exactly what we don't have. We don't have the members caring for each other. We have them biting and devouring one another, as the Apostle says in another place, take heed that you don't consume one another. You just don't eat yourself right up. So now it says, and whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. I assure you, if you have a twisted joint in your foot, or you have a pain in your stomach, or even a slightest pain of a hangnail on your hand, you don't say, my hand's bothering me, but I'm not bothered anywhere else. In fact, our vernacular isn't that my hand is bothering me. It's that I'm having a a problem, that I'm hurting. And someone say, where does it hurt? You say, well, my hand hurts, but the fact is my whole body is suffering. I am suffering due to the problem with my hand. Well, it says whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it, Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, when you're honored and you're feeling good, you don't see, well, I feel good in my shoulders, but frankly, my elbows and my knees aren't getting any of that joy. That's hardly the case. The fact is that when one member is honored, the whole body is honored, and that's how it ought to be in the Christian churches. But, of course, it's not that way. It wasn't that way in Corinth. And friends, let's be honest with one another, it's not that way with us either. And we need to remedy that. We need to do something about that. And what is it that we need to do about that? Well, we have the answer here given in the next chapter. We're going to see about that, but we're not ready for that yet. We have a couple of things to look at still here in the 12th chapter, and we'll do that as soon as we come back. Won't you stay with us after this announcement? Now, as we come to the end of the 12th chapter, we're beginning to get at the heart of the matter of another problem that the Corinthians had that was closely related to the schisms that operated. They had their schisms. They had their argumentations. They had the old Gentile schism. And you know what the old Gentile schism is? The Lord told the apostles during His time on earth, don't be like the Gentiles. They're always arguing about who's the greatest, Now, I grew up as a Gentile, and that was substantially our daily argument. The daily argument I had as little boys, the daily argument we had as grown boys, the daily argument we had as young men, frankly, the daily arguments we have among ourselves as Christians seems always to be who's the greatest, who's going to be the best. I had the unhappy or happy circumstance, depending on how you look at it, of growing up during the prime of... Cassius Clay, also known as Muhammad Ali, and of course he made famous the statement that he used to boast about, I am the greatest. Of course that was the beginning of every fight, and here was a fellow who fought professionally, and you want to start a fight, all you do is start out with, well I'm the greatest, who's the greatest? This is going on in the Corinthian church, a church made up substantially of Gentiles, and we shouldn't expect anything else, because that's the way the Gentiles behave. Who is the greatest? And the apostles fell into that kind of argument themselves while the disciples followed the Lord Jesus Christ. They got into those arguments about who would be the greatest. A couple of them even dragged their mom into the fight. And that's the fight that was going on in Corinth, and that's the fight that's going on in your church too. Who's going to be the greatest? Who is the greatest? I am the greatest. You've got to always look out for old number what? It's not number six. It's always number one. Well, here we have the 28th through 31st verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'll tell you, this chapter does not divide well from the 13th chapter. It's really all one piece of the same whole. As you know, the chapter and verse uh, designations in the Scripture are convenient mnemonics that we use, but they're not inspired parts of the Scripture. So as we look down to the 28th and 29th and 30th verses... We see that God has a particular order for the people of the Pentecostal church. And I'm going to tell you flat out that you do not have all of these people in your church. In fact, of the ones named right here, you may have one of these kinds of people in your church. Certainly the rest of them you don't have. And there are a couple of other kinds of people that are set forth in the church that are not named here. And I'll tell you that they're not named because I don't think there's really any controversy around them. None of them claim to be the best and hardly anybody wants to do it. Those two people are those who rule or guide and those who help. You don't find people who help arguing really too much about who's the greatest helper. They just don't want to do it. Well, we have these listed now. God has sent some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, and after that, and then we have another list here. So God has set a certain order in the church. These are orders of ministry. These are people that God has set in the church, and they have rank. There is such a thing as rank in the church it is not ranked based on the person it is ranked based upon the work that the person does so god doesn't rank people he ranks work and he calls people to do that work and therefore they assume the rank of their work now that rank of their work is not anything to determine their praiseworthiness before god it's simply to prioritize the tasks that need to be done so for example if you're going to have dinner The tasks that need to be done uh, are cook the dinner, clean up the table, and do the dishes, and they have to be ranked in order. The priority is first, cook the dinner, second, eat the dinner, third, clean up the dinner. And you don't clean up before you cook, and you don't eat before you cook, because just of the nature of the thing. So God orders His work, and He puts His workers into His work. And the rank in the church is first apostles first apostles now we don't have to worry about apostolic rank today because there aren't any apostles we don't have any so it was a problem in the corinthian church because this is the apostolic church also the charismatic church or the pentecostal church i would call it the charismatic church or the apostolic church most properly pentecostal church was in jerusalem only but this is a charismatic church insofar as the sign gifts are operating and it's the apostolic church insofar as the apostles still operate and function so first in the church is an apostle first ranked in that church of Corinth was the apostle Paul or the apostle Apollos or in the Ephesian church for example another apostle Epaphroditus well here is the first ranking the work of the apostle we don't need apostolic work today all the apostolic work has been done we'll see that in the book of Ephesians but here it does rank first apostolic work secondarily the work of prophets the work of prophets the apostolic church had prophets that is importantly no longer an office in the church of God it's very important that it's not an office otherwise the foundational work of the church never got finished. But it did get finished. We don't have any prophets today either. But it was a problem in the Corinthian church and they needed to realize that apostles rank first, prophets rank second. Thirdly, teachers. Well this is something we do have. We still do have teachers. But teachers today are not merely teachers. The Bible word for teacher today is a compound teaching shepherd. It is a combination word. A teacher in the church of God is supposed to be a shepherd with the sheep, and one is to shepherd the sheep while teaching the sheep. Not merely to teach, but also to shepherd. One of the problems we have today is people that want to shepherd the sheep, but don't teach them. But a bigger problem we have today is people who want to teach the sheep, but don't want to shepherd. They don't want to be out in the field with them. And so we have men who are not like other men, teaching other men. But David was not one like that. David spent his time out with the sheep. He was a shepherd of sheep. Our Lord Jesus Christ spent his time with the men, with those he taught. He was the good shepherd. He's our example. He was out there doing just what they did. And if we had more ordinary men shepherding the church of God, we would have much better churches. The closest analogy I have when I look out in the world to what a shepherd is, is an athletic coach. Now I don't say that athletic coaches are shepherds of God's sheep, but they function as a shepherd of the sheep ought to function. They're out with their players, they're out instructing them at the same time that they're enduring the hardship with them. It doesn't mean they go through all the exercises, it doesn't mean that they can even play as well, but they're out with their own. So that's a good example, I think, of what a teaching shepherd is. But here, there was not need for the teaching shepherd in the apostolic church as much as there is today because there was the work of the apostles and prophets going on with the teachers. After that, workers of miracles. These were miracle workers. There were such people. You could find them. They had such gifts from God that made them miracle workers there are no miracle workers today there just aren't any then we have gifts of healings. these are healers in the pentecostal church in the apostolic church in the charismatic church there were healers there were those these signs followed after them the sign wonder of healing this has not happened today this is not about doctors when you're a doctor you're not a healer nobody made you a healer you didn't get grace by God to be a healer in fact that's why you have that oath first of all do no harm because you know you're not a healer and you might do harm instead of good so there are no healers today now we have helps governments diversities of tongues we have here the helper here the ruler or the one who guides it gives guidance And there are such people, and there is no miraculous work here. There's no sign gift. Now, there was grace gift to do this by the grace of God. But this is not a sign gift or miraculous work. And so I would allow that there are those who rule, who uh, give guidance in the church, and there are those who help in the church. In fact, there are many of these, but they don't seem to have the problem of arrogance that maybe the rest of us have. Well, finally... We have diversities of tongues, and these would include both those who spoke miraculously with the gift of languages and would include those also who interpreted with languages. I want you to see that they're last on the list, ranked last, and even though apparently it was one of the bigger problems, and we'll see that in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians here, that these fellows needed to have extra regulation put on them. Now we have verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, are all having the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? You see the helpers and the rulers were left out of this question because I think they weren't problems. Do all have all these gifts? The answer is no. Not everybody has these gifts. Therefore, gifted people need to be placed in order. Now there's two reasons that the apostle said that these gifted people needed to be ordered among themselves. Number one, because they were getting out of hand, because they believed that the gifting, the extraordinary gifting that they had received that made them stand out was for their own edification so that they might become outstanding people rather than to minister honor to the less comely parts. So that's the first reason why he calls them out. The second reason he's calling them out is because many of these gifts, whether gifted people or the gifts given to the people, are going to cease. In fact, they're not going to be apostles and prophets after the apostolic period. Teachers will become teaching shepherds. There won't be any workers of miracles. There won't be any uh, workers of healings. Uh, There won't be any speaking with other languages, and there won't be any interpreters. Therefore, he says this at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and I believe that it's read this way. It starts out with a conjunctive disjunctive, the word but. But, it says, covet earnestly the best gift. Another has put it this way, and I think it might be correct. You are earnestly coveting the best gifts. It's an observation. These uh, in Corinth, earnestly coveted or sought after the greatest gifts they wanted to be the greatest so they earnestly sought the greatest gifts or the more eminent charismata but I will show unto you a more excellent way he said well while you're doing that he says while you're doing that let me tell you this is what you do but I'm going to show you a more excellent way a better way not only is it better because it's morally better And it's appropriate because it fits with the proper function of the church, which is Christ's body, but also because it's going to last. And this other thing that you're so caught up with, these Pentecostal gifts or these charismatic grace gifts that you are so attracted to and that you desire so much, most of them, many of them, are going to pass away and he's going to tell them exactly which ones are going to pass away and so he says this I'm going to show you a better way or a more excellent way and it's more excellent not only because it's morally superior but because it's going to last and that's what the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians is about it's not about your wedding vows it's not about the uh, love of a man and a woman. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the principle of love, which is to thoroughly mark the operation of the church, which is Christ's body. And I'll tell you, that means the local church as it gives expression uh, to the truth. And that's what we're going to come to. And what is this way? You know, when it talks about a way in Scripture, that's what the Christians were called before they were first called Christians at Antioch they were called those of that way you say what way well you see the way they conduct themselves in John's epistles it was supposed to be that those who looked on said those people are different because they love each other look how they love each other for reasons that are not obvious, apparent, or common that is the more excellent way and again I say it's a more excellent way because it's morally superior and because it's permanent it's lasting it's the love that's based on principle and we'll take that up next time I hope you stay with us I'm John Malone you've been listening to BibleStudy.net